have you ever had a, a woman decline Rogam? And if so, why? Or Courtney, did you think about declining? Is there anything about Rogam that gives anyone pause? Courtney, you had Rogam after the birth of your first child. Yes. And Jessica, you're saying that the administration of Rogam in these situations is basically like 99.9% effective? Uh, yes, because of how specific it is and how great it is in controlling the immune response against the fetus. They go in and do an intrauterine blood transfusion. It was at 24 weeks when that measurement in the baby's brain was elevated and they recommended a transfusion. And despite knowing everything that might happen, I was so prepared. It was still an emotional roller coaster. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig. Certified Nurse Midwife and International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. So I'm Courtney Yeager, and I have three boys. Um, and I'm about to share my journey through my three pregnancies um, dealing with isoalloimmunization. Which is? Which is um, a condition that develops when an RH negative mother has an RH positive partner and the baby in utero also has a positive blood type. Okay. I have two questions. Um, one, when you say RH negative and RH positive, is that when there's a minus or a plus after someone's blood type? So we're not talking about someone whose blood type A, we're talking only if someone is A positive or O negative, any blood type, but if it only has that RH factor. And the second is how do you know a baby's blood type in utero? There is, you, you don't know unless you have specific blood typing that is done during the pregnancy or, um, amniocentesis would be the only other way to know prior to birth. Okay. So Courtney, you have your very own midwife here on the show with us today to help us all understand what this RH positive, RH negative blood type incompatibility means and what it means for your pregnancy journey. We're going to get to hear that story of how you had to make some difficult decisions about how to be managed in subsequent pregnancies. So we are lucky to, enough to have Jessica here with us, who um, it's an honor, Jessica, to have you on the show as a fellow Yale alumni midwife. Yes. Um, so can you help our community and our listeners understand what this all is? Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here to help um, share in, in Courtney's journey. It has been incredible experience to be by her side through this process. Um, I am, my name is Jessica Pipitone Stanek. I am um, a faculty member at the Yale School of Nursing in the Nurse Midwifery Program. And I, um, this is a very common um, thing that many pregnant patients have to um, make a decision around if in fact they are RH negative, like um, like Courtney was saying. So there are different blood types. There's A, B, and O, and we're kind of familiar with who has those. But there's an additional blood type identifier that is an RH factor. It's a protein 
on the red blood cell, which is a marker of compatibility for someone's blood to mix with another's blood. So the process of alloimmunization, which is essentially Courtney's own body's response to a foreign antigen from her fetus, from her baby, from another human. And this happens, this alloimmunization happens in blood transfusions, um, people who receive donated blood, and also in pregnancy. Um, um, so the baby and the mother actually exchange blood in the process because I know a baby can be born um, without a blood disease the mother has or an entirely different exactly. blood type, but they do at some point after conception exchange blood. And that's where that's the point we're talking about here. Exactly. And that can lead to exposure into the, the mother's um, immune system. And that can happen at various points, you know, throughout um, throughout the pregnancy itself, there's different opportunities for that. But um, how the immune system works, it just takes that first exposure for the body to be able to recognize and then prepare and mount an attack for the second exposure, where the fetal cells then are flagged for destruction, essentially. And so if the patient is our is Rh negative, and in Courtney's case, the father is Rh positive, the chances of the baby being Rh positive is either 50% or 100% based on how many copies of the gene the father actually has. So from there, in the second pregnancy, or the second exposure, I should say, um, these antibodies cross the, the placenta, alloimmunization occurs, and those cells that are flagged for destruction cause, they are red blood cells and they cause fetal anemia. Um, and that is, that is the point where um, Courtney was being monitored with ultrasound and determined whether or not she should intervene um, in, in order to either deliver the baby early to prevent this from continuing to happen with this own attack from her body towards her baby, or um, she can, if the baby's very premature, you you weigh the risks and the benefits and you can administer um, internal, in utero, uh, fetal blood transfusion, which is very rare and um, something that was just a phenomenal feat that occurred with our maternal fetal medicine team. Uh, Jessica, you made a reference to the second time this exchange happens. Mm -hmm. Did you mean to say, or does that mean in the second pregnancy or a subsequent pregnancy only? And is there no risk to the first pre in the first pregnancy with the first baby? That's the first question I have. Yes, there's usually okay. very little risk that first go round. So it's, it's a non-issue if a woman plans to have one baby, or it's her. It's not potentially if she plans to have one baby. The risk is 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 lower. Yes. Also, just to clarify, there's also no risk to the mother in this situation, the, Correct. the, the main risk is to subsequent babies. Yes. Okay. Because of that attack system right. that can be triggered. Okay. And the right. second question I had, that's a quick one. What is alloimmunization? Um, so that is the process of your body forming an immune response to foreign proteins from another human. So either in blood transfusion or in pregnancy. Okay. So your body is like ready to attack someone else's blood type, essentially. So it, this was not an issue with my first pregnancy. Um, when I got pregnant the second time, we discovered relatively early on that I had antibodies developed. Uh, How did you discover that? Um, I actually had some minimal bleeding early in my pregnancy. And so at that time, we simultaneously took blood work um, to work that up. And I was given Brogam. 
So with my second pregnancy, because those two events happened simultaneously, we actually weren't sure if it was a false positive because of the rogam that I had the antibodies or if it was a true interaction that had happened with my first pregnancy. And you knew at this point that you were RH negative and your husband was RH positive. So you knew going into your second pregnancy that this could be an issue or were you kind we of still unaware? No, okay. we, we, I found out when I had the antibodies, we then tested my husband's blood type and we found out early on then that he was um, RH positive and he carried two of the dominant um, factors in his blood, which meant that all of our children in the future would be positive as well. So there was a hundred percent chance that any future babies, this was going to be an incompatibility issue with the blood types. Correct. Correct. So they monitored, they continued to monitor my blood levels. Um, My blood levels started to rise. And when they got to um, the critical point, there's a, there's a threshold that they consider critical. I started to have biweekly ultrasounds and during those, um, the middle cerebral arteries, a blood vessel in the baby's brain, they measure the velocity, the speed of the blood going through that vessel. And that directly correlates with how potentially anemic that the baby may be. For my second pregnancy, that level never rose. It was never an issue. You know, we delivered as normal, um, although I I did deliver a little bit early, um, but he was not affected. This might be a good time for us to have Jessica explain um, in these in subsequent pregnancies that there is a medication that is sometimes offered to mothers called Rogam which can help prevent this incompatibility issue. You didn't mention anything about taking Rogram. Was that something that was offered to you in your second pregnancy? I I did receive Rogram um, appropriately with my first pregnancy at 28 weeks and then again at delivery. This was something that was given because we knew that I was um, RH negative from the beginning, with even with my first pregnancy. My second pregnancy, I did receive Rogam as well, again, because we weren't sure if it was a false positive that I had the antibodies or if they were true. So we erred on the side of caution for the second pregnancy. Right. So Rogam is um, a prophylactic attempt to administer a blood product. It's actually a blood product. Um, It is human plasma, essentially, and it is from donor plasma with a high amount of these um, anti-D, which is what we're talking about in terms of uh, the protein that's being expressed that Courtney's body is wanting to attack, immunoglobulin. And what it does is it binds to any sort of any um, RH positive factor that's detected in her bloodstream. The actual mechanism of action is not precisely known. Sometimes it, it it's either it sops up all of the potential floating around um, RH positive factors from her husband, right? Or, or essentially from the baby that was donated from the husband, essentially, or it downregulates her own immune response um, to then attack. So if you get Rogam, then you are potentially stopping her immune system from going ahead and flagging and destroying the red blood cells within the baby in that pregnancy. So the the tricky part about Courtney's pregnancy is that that didn't, that was unsuccessful, unfortunately. Um, So it in fact is now something very, very rare. So somehow blood mixed between the fetus and the mother, between Courtney's baby and Courtney, 
and and there was not possibly enough rogam given that we don't really know the cause but despite our prophylactic efforts it's still um, her body still started to mount this response. Maybe she just has a superhuman immune system. <laughs> we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, just to be clear, um, Courtney, you had Rogam at the after the birth of your first child. Yes, right. And then you had it again at the uh, sometime in pregnancy with your second baby yes. as prophylactic prevention. And in order for it to be this effective, it does need to be given after the birth, shortly after the birth of the first child to prevent that immune response from kicking in. Anything the mother's produced, we soak it all up with the Rogam and hope that it just quiets the immune system for subsequent pregnancy. So then the next RH positive baby that comes down the pike, no one, the, the, um, the immune system is not ready to just launch an attack. Okay. So I have two questions. Um, one is how did you know it didn't take for Courtney? How does a woman know? Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable, and Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. 
Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. So Courtney had those positive antibodies show up in her blood test and we were confused. We were like, wait a minute, how would you have that if in fact you received Rogam to soak it all up? It didn't really do a great job. Um, Where is this coming from? And so they determined that she in fact, yes, was sensitized. And from there on, it's like there's nothing to do other than monitor for the potential severe fetal effects. And that is anemia. So they were doing ultrasounds to check to see if the baby had progressive anemia. Um, and then that, you know, the the potential is, is stillbirth and death, unfortunately, if this goes unchecked, if you don't deliver the baby too soon or give the baby a transfusion inside in utero, because this severe anemia as a result of the destruction from the maternal immune system results in um, a, a syndrome called hydrops fatalis, and that it, that produces swelling of the liver and the spleen and the heart of the fetus, and it's but it's fatal. So the balance was how premature was Courtney's baby to be either delivered at that time, or if if the risk of prematurity is is so great and the potential to transfuse is pretty successful. And we had a team that's very, you know, capable and able of doing that really um, quite successfully and several times, no doubt, um, because Courtney, I think, how many transfusions did your baby end up having? I, my third, with my third son, um, he was, you know, affected on the ultrasounds. We could see the, the level, the velocity in the blood vessel rising. And that's when they recommend the blood transfusions. He had a total of six intrauterine blood transfusions. Right. And that prevents that hydrops fatalis from developing essentially. So it's a life-saving effort because there's nothing we can do to control um, Courtney's immune system at that juncture. It just was on a mission to get the foreign protein and take care of it. It was doing a very good job, but unfortunately at the consequence of the fetal prognosis. So you were still sensitized with the second baby, second pregnancy, but everything went on normally. Baby was born full term, no intervention. And then this all in the third pregnancy started to um, become evident that yes. it was no longer in check. Your body was rejecting this pregnancy. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that was determined by the ultrasounds. Got it. Just to clarify, when you had explained in the beginning that there can be this incompatibility and there's this attack response, I had assumed that that would result in miscarriage. I had no idea that could mean she's carrying the baby full term and it could result in stillbirth. So that definitely is hitting home on a different level, learning that. So the baby can kind of hang on throughout pregnancy, but really not make it in the end. That's, that's more serious than it even sounded in the beginning. Go ahead. I can, ex- I can yeah. explain that because there's, 
the risk of miscarriage and being affected early on is not as much because there's not as much blood from the fetus in the maternal circulation at that point. Mm, so okay. as the baby grows, there's more volume of blood with of the baby that then could potentially be influencing or, or leaking into or somehow getting into the maternal system. And it's only that detection of that blood that the immune system responds to. Mm, okay. Interesting. Um, and I think Courtney just answered this other quick question. Um, I was going to say, how do you know in that second pregnancy, the baby, they already knew from testing you that it really didn't take, but you also said the baby was presenting as anemic. Are we talking the baby in utero the second time around? They can tell if a baby is anemic by a scan. Yes. When they measure the blood vessel in the baby's brain, that measurement correlates to potentially how anemic the baby is. And there's these numbers. The velocity of flow through the brain determines whether you can see that or not. Yeah. Okay. And then my, my last question at this point, we know I'm going to have more, but is for Jessica, Jessica, um, I'm imagining Courtney is the first one you've encountered in your career where this happened. Um, but tell me if, have you ever had, um, have you ever had a, a woman decline Rogam and if so, why, or Courtney, did you think about declining? Is there anything about Rogam that gives anyone pause? Courtney, go ahead. For me, with my first pregnancy, I I, I knew um, that I was an RH negative blood type, and I just knew that that was something that I should do. Now that I know, I know I've learned so much since then. Um, with my second pregnancy, I really learned that you know, yes, I'm an RH negative blood type, but my husband is positive. But there's also a chance that you could have a partner that is positive that still carries the negative factor. So they have one positive and one negative. And there is a 50-50 chance, I think Jessica mentioned this earlier, that you could, in that case, have an RH negative baby. So there are all these layers to it, you know, testing your blood type, your partner's blood type. And then, you know, if your partner does have the 50-50 chance, then testing the baby's blood type to see if in fact you're looking at an RH positive baby or RH negative baby. For me, it was never a question regarding Rogam because I was positive after that, after I learned all this, but there is a lot of information there um, to look at for sure. There is also the possibility that the woman doesn't get sensitized. It's a high risk. But why does some women not end up getting the shot? I mean, yes, you might end up not needing it in the end, but is it because of this very serious side effects listed on the insert? Is is that why some women do? I mean, do you see women declining Rogam? And if so, why? To answer your question, yes, I have had patients refuse Rogam despite the fact being RH negative. Um, the risk of Rogam is a theoretical risk of transmission of disease because it is a human blood product, right? But it is tested and processed and filtered to reduce and minimize that risk. Um, so, but there are also other religious implications. So patients who are um, Jehovah's Witness, for example, who are observing that um, will not or, or just consider it and give pause to whether or not they're going to accept a human blood product. Um, there's also allergic reactions to Rogan, possibly a very rare documented anaphylaxis, which is that severe immune uh, reaction to receiving something that your body is uh, working hard to fight against. But um, also, it's mostly just local reaction to the in, at the injection site. Is it a vaccine? With adjuvants it's, in it that, that has all yes. the typical things. Okay, so Correct. anyone who's who, who might be anti-vax, yes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't want to use. I don't want to. Yeah, but right. like anyone, anyone who's, who's 
Can anyone gives, gives pause right. when it comes to vaccine? This exactly. would fall under that category as well. Exactly. Whether it's the chemicals in it or, okay. Absolutely. That's a whole answer. Good. And okay. the conversation then usually goes to um, the risk of not receiving Rogam for a subsequent pregnancy and how disastrous those fetal outcomes are for that subsequent pregnancy and what kind of consideration this person needs to really um, think through as a result of their action or non-action. What is the risk of loss if they don't, if they don't ever get Rogam and they do have that second baby who is RH positive, Positive. Mm -hmm. what is the risk of loss? It's not necessarily loss, it's fetal death. And that's upwards of 17% of it um, turning into this very severe anemia that is um, detrimental to the life of the fetus. So the 17% is the um, occurrence of hydrops fatalis. Is that right? That's the occurrence of um, sensitization. So yes, of that L immunization of um, that pregnancy at that time. It's it's possible. It doesn't happen, right? You know. What was the difference between loss and death? I, when I said loss, I was including miscarriage, stillbirth. Do you mean death? Meaning it can also be after the baby's birth? Is that why Correct. you changed the word to death? Okay. Yes. It could be neonatal. Okay. So one other thing that I have um, heard out there is that there are certain things that we may do in pregnancy might increase the chances of uh, maternal and fetal blood mixing. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that, comments on that, procedures that are done at the time of birth, ultrasounds, um, manual extraction of placentas, I've heard, sure. things like that, that are going to increase the chance that a mother and baby are going to have this mixing, mixing of blood and potential sensitization. So are there ways that Absolutely. we can reduce this? If a woman is really is RH negative and really is opposed for whatever reason to Rogam, are there things that we can do in birth to reduce the chances of this happening? The time of birth is the most um, likely chance of mixing to happen because of the just the nature of the physiologic process. But yes, I would imagine... But but what is the consequence of not manually removing the placenta if needed? Hopefully, we're doing it only at need, and then you're risking the life of the mother and not being able to control the postpartum hemorrhage. So I feel like it's all risk-benefit, obviously, but um, we always are going to prophylax in the instance of someone having if, if or offer prophylaxis to someone who is having a miscarriage an abortion um, an ectopic pregnancy any incidence of vaginal bleeding at during the pregnancy we're always going to offer a bit more of an extra dose of rogam to hopefully capture any of that fetal blood that is um, in the maternal circulation, trauma in pregnancy, any impact to the belly, a patient is, who's in a um, motor vehicle accident, for example, who is RH negative would be offered an additional uh, dose of Rogam. Have you ever seen any um, research or anecdotal evidence that frequent ultrasounds throughout pregnancy could break down some integrity between the placenta and the maternal uterus? I have not, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. I, I have not either. I've heard people present that as a possibility of increasing the chances, mm-hmm. but I don't know of any evidence on it. 
Right. So going into my third pregnancy, I knew from everything I had learned with my second pregnancy, what might happen. Um, and I felt confident in it. I felt confident in our care team. Um, I felt confident in the decisions we had to make. You know, once my blood levels started to rise and I needed to have the ultrasounds, I was prepared for what was coming. It was at 24 weeks when that measurement in the baby's brain was elevated and they recommended a transfusion. And despite knowing everything that might happen, I was so prepared. It was still an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you go for the ultrasound thinking it's going to be the same outcome as it was every other time. And sure enough, I could, you know, I could see it on the screen and um, they admit you right to the hospital. Um, what's interesting about the transfusion is um, that's what they recommend doing after the blood levels rise on the ultrasound is they go in and do a intrauterine blood transfusion through the placenta where it, um, where through the umbilical cord, where it inserts into the placenta. So it's done a lot like amniocentesis is done, but they go further, further in and they can do it under local anesthetic, very low, you know, low risk that way. Um, the interesting decision for me in this was I actually, for all six transfusions that, um, my son ended up needing, I actually opted to have an epidural from someone that had three, ultimately three births without an epidural. Um, I chose to have six of them for these transfusions because there were other risks at play for, you know, if the baby had to be delivered prematurely, they'd have to put me under general anesthesia and my husband couldn't be there. And those risks felt heavy to me. So there was all these decisions that emotional decisions and conversations that you never want to have that, that came from from all of this, but he, he had his six blood transfusions and there were six people, six blood donations prior to his birth that saved him. And, um, he did, you know, we knew we were looking at a NICU stay. Um, I delivered at 35 weeks with midwives. I think that's also the, yes, yes. the huge piece is your, um, wanting to simultaneously have that care albeit side by side. So that's, I think the, the one piece that's missing is the co-management with MFM and midwifery. Yes. So I was managed by the midwives and the maternal fetal medicine team. And I imagine that week by week you were having to over and over make the decision of whether the baby stays in utero another week versus giving birth preterm. How did, how did you manage that? Like what were the deciding factors? After 34 weeks, the risk of transfusion becomes greater than delivering. So I knew when we approached that point, we are going to have to make a choice. Um, based on the way my transfusions were spread out, we made it to 35 weeks without needing um, another transfusion. But if we had gone on, the risk of going in, because the baby's bigger, it's harder to get to the umbilical cord where it inserts in the placenta, the risks become greater. So I was looking at... Um, a, a premature delivery. But again, even in that setting, even being 35 weeks, I, Jessica knows, I, I really pushed to, I still wanted to deliver with the midwives. I still wanted to give myself and my body a chance, you know, to do what it had done before and not write it off as, you know, an automatic C-section or, or anything. And, and I think that, I guess the best part of the story is it was successful. <laughs> so very different than my other two deliveries, but um, yeah. So you had a vaginal birth in the hospital with your midwives who you had been with through the whole pregnancy and prior pregnancies. So you had that amazing benefit of the continuity of care alongside of having the advanced care of maternal me fetal medicine. 
and that collaborative care is ideally the, you know, that's the optimal scenario for any high risk pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, there's a lot of things here, but that's one of the biggest takeaways for any other women going through this is to really advocate for yourself and your wants and that this is a possibility to, you know, still have that experience, even though you're being co-managed as a high risk pregnancy. Courtney, your other two births were um, vaginal births, unmedicated, correct? Not yes. Yeah. Right. Didn't even have an IV. <laughs> so, so, so you had all that good foundation in your physiology for your your oxytocin receptors to be really receptive to an induction. Yeah, I, every step of the way, I just kept telling myself, my body knows how to That's do this, right. and I can, I, I can still do it, even though there's all these, you know, roadblocks being thrown my way. That's awesome. One thing too, what, what was interesting is just based on hospital protocol at Yale and where I was in my pregnancy, they they did want me to push in the operating room um, just because of all the risks to the baby. So getting to 10 centimeters and then going to push in, I'm so thankful to Jessica and her team to help help directly, indirectly advocate for me not to do that. Oh, wow. You <laughs> said no, right? Do that. Yeah, you kept her where she was. Well, it was about to happen and I don't know if I consciously did it or my body was doing it anyways, but the baby happened to come out as we were. Oh yeah. You room, played so. a role in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also think that the, the, tru- you know, birth is so, is so psychological and, and emotional. And so having the trust and in a relationship that has been not only made f- during this high risk pregnancy, but then in previous pregnancies, I think that just all just, it works in your favor um, to be able to have that response of the body that you're hoping for. My son did need to have, he was there in the NICU and there are all these other things that come into play after birth with a baby who has been affected by a sensitized pregnancy. Um, You know, uh, his bilirubin was an issue. Um, Again, anemia, he actually went on to have three blood transfusions after birth. So four to six months after birth, you're still managing the effects of these antibodies that were developed during pregnancy. And, um, it, you know, it doesn't end at delivery. It, 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 as Jessica was alluding to it, it does continue on after. And then now he's, he's great. He's making his own blood and he's doing wonderfully. You'd never even know this happened. So there is an end point, but it's, it's a journey to get there. I, I just, um, am really, um, so supportive of Courtney for um, advocating for herself in this process because despite we have this biological drive to birth our children in the way that we are meant to birth and despite all of any complexity of high-risk pregnancy that she was facing she really knew that despite it all it it can be viewed as a, a physiologic process apart from the prenatal management of all of that was going on. So I am just um, so grateful to her for getting the message out that it is possible to continue that relationship with like um, Trisha had mentioned, like the relationship with your midwife in, in certain practices or certain practices that don't do this. So it, it was um, a gift that we were able to have the lowest intervention birth possible for her promote vaginal birth by having her be in all, you know, all sorts of different positions and have 
the lights low and her family present. And, you know, I, I actually was not there for the birth itself, but um, from what I hear, it was pretty magical as it should have been. So I just congratulate you in not only supporting and um, advocating for that for yourself, but then getting this message out to other childbearing folks as well. I, my heart is just so full. I mean, I could sit here and get really emotional about it because, you know, like the weight of all the decisions that were made. And, but I never, at, you know, in my gut, I knew I never had to question my care team. And I wouldn't have been able to, to make the decisions that I made without their support. So like, I feel, Jessica said, I also feel it was a gift and um, I'm just, you know, it couldn't have been a better outcome despite the circumstances really. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. How do you know each other? Through school. Yeah. We you went, went together? together? Well, Jessica, oh. you was a little you were a year behind me? Maybe. I was 2006. I, I very distinctly remember um doing practicing Leopold's on your pregnant belly. Oh, <laughs> with Lola in my belly. With Lola. Yes. yes. That's, That's funny. So cool.